All right. Okay, so let me tell you what we're talking about today. So each semester, we kind of pick a different theological subject, and we study it more in depth. So this semester, we are studying God. We're trying to figure out who God is. That's a pretty important question. And so we started off talking about God's existence and some proofs for God's existence. We talked about the fact that God is a trinity, that there is only one God. We are not polytheists. We are monotheists. Yet, this one God is also somehow three distinct persons at the same time. And so we talked about the trinity. And for the last several weeks, about the last four weeks, we've been talking about God's attributes. What is God like? That he's loving and that he's wrathful and that he's omniscient. He knows everything and that he's omnipotent, that he can do anything and that he's omnipresent. He's everywhere and all these omnis and impassibility and a saity that God doesn't need us. He is of himself, these kind of things. And so for the rest of the semester, we're still going to be talking about God, but now we're going to start talking about how God relates to his creation. And so just to uh, whet your appetite, uh, we're going to be talking soon about things like, uh, why is there evil in the world? If God is good and he's powerful, why is there evil in the world? We're going to be talking about angels and demons. That'll be weird. That'll be creepy. That's coming up. We'll be talking about if God is sovereign over everything, how do we make real decisions or have quote-unquote free will? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about miracles, and so it should be a lot of fun. So today, though, we're not talking about those fun things. We're talking about creation, theories, and evolution. How did God create the world? So next week, Jeff is going to talk about what it means for God to be creator, and he's going to talk about things like how God created, why did God create, how Christianity is different than other world religions when it comes to the idea of creation. But today, we're going to primarily talk about three things. One, we're going to talk about how old is the earth. We're going to try to. We're going to talk about different creation theories. How did God create? We're going to ask whether or not the, J, the, the, J's, the days in Genesis 1 and 2 are literal 24-hour days, or are they long periods of time? And then lastly, we're going to talk about evolution. What should we as Christians think about evolution, different kinds of evolution, etc.? So it should be a lot of fun. So two things to keep in mind before we actually get into this topic. First, first preliminary thing. We in Christianity should never be afraid to wrestle with facts. We should never be afraid to wrestle with philosophy. We should never be afraid to wrestle with science, okay? In the medieval church, you had a very popular Latin phrase, which I have written out here in my terrible terroristy handwriting, and it is fides quarens intellectum, which means faith-seeking understanding. That's how our faith works. Not the other way around. It's not understanding, seeking faith. It's not, I've got to figure out everything and get all my theological ducks in a row, and then I can come to Jesus. It's I come to Jesus in faith, and then as I walk with Christ, I learn more and more and more. So we spend the rest of our lives, in a sense, learning what happened to us in our salvation. And so it is faith-seeking understanding. The reason I say that is because in the Bible, we have a rational faith. Okay? Sometimes when people define faith, they actually define it as what doesn't associate with reason. That's how a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard defined it, that faith is a leap away from what is actually rational. That's not the way the Bible sees faith. The Bible sees faith as grounded in facts. When Paul is trying to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, he doesn't say, just trust it in your heart, brother. He says, 500 other people saw him and they're still alive and you can go talk to him. For him, it's something that you prove, that if there are the bones of Jesus of Nazareth somewhere in the Middle East, then our faith is void. And so we have a faith. Yes, there are elements we can't explain. There are elements that are mysterious, but we want a faith that is built upon facts, that is built upon truth, that is built upon things that actually happen. So keep that in mind. Second thing to keep in mind, and this is huge with this topic today, ultimately, there is no conflict in God's mind between the findings of science and what the Bible teaches, okay? Okay. God knows everything about science, and God knows everything about his word, and in his mind, there is no conflict. 
The only reason today we see conflict sometimes between theology and the Bible and science is because we don't know everything about either of those fields. We misinterpret the Bible, and so sometimes we're off there. And when it comes to science, that's obviously always changing as new theories come up and we improve upon it, etc. Okay? Do you guys know how George Washington died? Who knows how George Washington died? Great, yes. Okay, I was about to say a lot of patriots in here. No one knows how George Washington died. Uh, he had a fever, and science at the time said that the way that you got rid of a fever was by bleeding people out. Let's get all that hot blood out of you, and then uh, you can have colder blood, and you'll be okay. And so by doing that, he died. Thanks a lot. Science is changing all the time, okay? So sometimes our view of science is off. Uh, other times, though, we've misinterpreted the Bible. So if you think of Copernicus or Galileo or some of these guys that were actually persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church, it's because they basically said that the sun was in the center of the solar system, which is true. And what the church said is, no, no, that can't be true because the Bible says things like sunset. So therefore, the Bible's trying to say that the earth is in the center of the solar system. And they were just wrong. That's not what the Bible's trying to do. The Bible's just talking about phenomena like we would talk about it today. When I'm uh, sitting with Katie, I don't say, look at the beautiful earth's rotation as we, don't, as we move and the sun doesn't. I say, babe, look at that beautiful sunset. That's all the Bible's doing. But they didn't know that. And so what they did is they interpreted the Bible incorrectly. So the reason that there's ever conflict between the Bible and science is not because there's actually conflict. All truth is God's truth. It's because what happens is we don't know everything about science. We don't know everything about the Bible. And because of our ignorance, that's how we see clashing, okay? So don't buy into this lie that uh, Christianity is anti-science and these kind of things. Uh, that's not true. Okay. Everybody good so far? Let's talk about how old the earth is to the day. I'm kidding. By the way, did you guys see that there was the guy this last week that predicted the end of the world, which was yesterday? I'm glad you're all here, all right? The Bible says that nobody knows when Christ is coming back, and so anybody that says that they do is ridiculous. Additionally, these people never take into account that on the other side of the world, they're already a day ahead of us, right? The world is not flat. We're not all on the same day, but they don't ever think about that. So anyway, okay, let's talk about the age of the earth. Two big theories when it comes to the age of the earth, when it comes to Christianity. One is called Old Earth. That sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. Middle Earth. Okay, Young Earth. And young earth. Man, I'm really sorry for the handwriting. Okay, I'm not angry. Old earth and young, young, oh man, that's like a V on top of a stick. Young earth right there. Old earth and young earth. These are the two big views, okay? Both of these, let me say this, both of these are legitimate evangelical options. I'm not saying one is not more true than the other. We're gonna look at some of these things, but here's what I wanna say. When we're talking about creation theories, as long as you affirm that the one Trinitarian God of the universe created everything out of nothing, you're standing within the bounds of orthodoxy, typically. Uh, so these views, I, I, I do think, and I'll give you several views here in a second, I do think some of these are better than others, but I want to be clear, you can be a Christian, and you can be an evangelical, and you can hold either of these. This is not like the Trinity that's super important you've got to cling on to. It's not like the resurrection of Christ, which is super important that you've got to cling, in, cling on to. This is something that is important. We want to be as close to the Bible as we can be, but this is not a matter of orthodoxy. It's not a matter of whether or not you're a Christian. If you deny the deity of Christ, you're not a Christian. If you pick, if you don't know how old the earth is, or you think it's really old or you think it's really young, that doesn't affect whether or not you love Jesus, okay? So keep that in mind. Both of these are evangelical options. Let me give you the two views. There are some Christians who believe in what is called old earth creationism, uh, which would agree with the modern findings of science. So the majority of uh, the scientific community would say that the earth, the earth is about 4.5 billion years old. That's billion with a B, okay? The young earth creationist, which is the other view, would say that the world is 
several thousand years old, that it's, you know, maybe eight to 10,000, but that's what a young earth creationist would say. So you see, there's a huge gap between their position. How big is the gap? Billions and billions and billions of years, okay? So these positions are not close. If you're off on this, you're off by billions of years, which is a big deal, okay? So the two views, though, is, is the world several billion years old, or is the world tens of thousands, maybe, let's say it that way, tens of thousands of years old. That is a big debate within evangelicalism. How should we understand Genesis 1 and 2? What should we do with the findings of modern science? Now, again, the vast majority of the scientific community does not even take into account the young earth position. They would hold that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. It changes by a few billion years every year. You know, every time there's a new science textbook, they have a different number there. But the point being is that they say that it is billions of years old. Okay. Now, where does the young earth position come from? Well, there was a guy named Usher, not the rapper. Archbishop James Usher, 1581 through 1656. And he was an archbishop. And what he did is he tried to go in the Bible and he tried to trace back all the genealogies that are mentioned in the Bible. Everybody know what a genealogy is? This guy was the son of this guy who was the son of this guy who was the son of this guy. You start reading, you know. You come back from youth camp, you're super excited to read the whole Bible until you get into like numbers and it's got all these genealogies and you're like, forget it. Forget it. It's too crazy. It's too long. Genealogies are really important when God has promised a specific lineage that a Messiah is going to come. Okay? So genealogies are super important. But what Usher did is he took those different genealogies and he traced it back and tried to calculate their time. So this guy lived this many years, okay? This guy lived this many years, all the way back to Adam. And he concluded that the world was created in 4004 BC. That was his timeline, okay? That's where you got the beginnings of kind of the idea of uh, an actual date, if you want to say it that way, of young earth creationism. So he would say that the world is only a few thousand years old because of that. Let me tell you the huge problem with that. That's not the way we use genealogies ever, okay? In the same way we don't try to predict the end of the world by counting up numbers, we would also don't try to predict the beginning of the world by counting up numbers. Genealogies have huge gaps in them because the genealogies are not meant to try to tell you how old the earth is. That's not their point. They're trying to link different people in that genealogy to important people before them. Let me give you an example. If the Bible says that Jesus is the son of David, is it A, trying to say that there's nobody in between Jesus and David, or B, trying to link Jesus to the fact that he's the Messiah like the Israel's King David? It's B, right? So you can't just count all the genealogies and say, ah, voila, the earth began on Thursday, November the 3rd. Why would God start it on November the 3rd? Why would it be that? Uh, why wouldn't you start on the 1st? Anyway, so you can't go back and you can't calculate it with that kind of precision. That's not the way we use genealogies in the Bible. That's not the point of genealogies, okay? So, which one of these is correct? Is the earth 4.5 billion years old? And if so, what do you do with all the stuff in Genesis that seems to be pretty early? Or is the world actually thousands of years old? And then what do you do with science? Do you see the tension? This is why there's debate on these things in evangelicalism. Okay, so let's talk about theories for why the earth could possibly be really old, and then we'll talk about theories for why the earth could be really young, and then I will give you Zach's secret answer of what he thinks is correct, which might not be right, but it's just a theory I have. So it doesn't mean I'm right. It just means you can't persuade me otherwise. That's all it means. Uh, and so, uh, okay, let me give you the uh, different theories here. So some Christians who hold that the world is billions of years old hold to an idea known as gap theory, gap theory, okay? Here's what that view states, that there is a long period of time in between Genesis 1-1 and the rest of Genesis, 
or between Genesis 1-2 and the rest of Genesis, okay? So how they will read it is they will say, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and then there is this big gap, and then the story actually starts with what we've got in Genesis, okay? Then the story starts with what we've got in Genesis. So what some people do is they'll say, okay, how can the creation account happen like it says in Genesis, but at the same time the world be really old? Well, God could have created the world and then waited before he actually started to fill it. Doesn't the creation story start with the earth being formless and void? It's already there, but it's not flourishing. It doesn't have people and plants and these kind of things. So one theory is that there is a gap in between God's initial creation of everything and then what subsequently follows as far as humans and plants and animals and these kind of things. They would say that's what would account for the earth being, when you take a soil sample, being really, really, really old, but why it seems to be the case that humanity and these kind of things are not very old. Okay, so that's one view. That's called gap theory. Everybody with me on what that is? Not that you like it or agree with it or don't agree with it. Everybody understand what I'm saying, okay? Let's talk about Hebrew real quick. Um, In Hebrew, you have something called a vav disjunctive, and what it does is it sets off the things after it. You don't have to know that. Here's basically what I'm saying, though. After it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, in Hebrew, there's what's called a vav disjunctive, which means that there is a sense in which Genesis 1-1 can serve more as a title. Genesis 1-1 is, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We don't know how long that's been. We don't know if there's a gap. And then the story begins, okay? And then the story begins. So that is one possible option. Another possible option is that there is a possibility of a really long day in Genesis 1, It could be the case that God took a really long time to create in the beginning was the heavens and the earth. So it took God a really long time to create the heavens and the earth. And then after that's taken billions of years or whatever, then we get the creation of plants and animals and mankind and these kind of things. Again, people that hold that view are trying to say, how can we keep the idea of a really old earth there, but also have a somewhat younger humanity, somewhat younger animals and plants and these kind of things, okay? Again, does everybody understand what that view is? The idea is that Genesis, the, the first day of creation, creating the heavens and the earth, that's a huge project, okay? That one's taken a really long time. The rest of the stuff kind of fills in those gaps, okay? A third view, or letter C, I always mix them. I'm always like, number one, B, Roman numeral L, and so it's really confusing on your notes. Sorry about that, okay? C, or three, or III, uh, however you're keeping track, the use of the word kinds in Genesis might be quite broad. So what some people say is, okay, how do you have a really old earth according to Genesis 1 and 2? And what they'll say is when the Bible says that God made plants and animals and stuff that reproduced according to their kinds, that that word kinds could be taken in a very broad way, which is where you get certain forms of evolutionary theory and stuff even within Christianity. Okay, we'll talk about whether or not you can hold that as a Christian later. But that's a view. A view is that as it says that, you know, these plants or animals or whatever produce after their kinds, that could actually be very broad, right? Let me tell you a mistake that we sometimes make in reading our taxonomy back onto the Bible. If you are ever preaching on the book of Jonah and you say that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, what will, what will Christians say to you? That's right. They'll say, no, it was a big fish. And I say, I'm so sorry. Jewish taxonomy doesn't separate those things. In Jewish thinking, there are just sea monsters. That's a whale, that's a giant squid, that's a fish. They're not thinking, oh, does it actually breathe air and it, does it have a blowhole? And these, that's not how they're thinking, okay? It's, that's, we, they don't do taxonomy, meaning the dividing up of animals like we do. And so what some people will say is that kinds could be rather broad when Genesis says that God made things that reproduce according to their kinds, okay? D. Uh, IV, four, uh, quattro, whatever you're doing. Next, 
Forming and filling. Let me explain this one. This is also called the literary framework view. What some scholars believe is that Genesis, trying to find how long these things are happening, or even trying to find a sequence in creation in Genesis 1 and 2, is not the point of Genesis 1 and 2, is what some people will say. What they'll say is the first three days, God is creating space, not like outer space like Star Wars, but like places where things can live, and then the, the next three days, God is filling in those spaces, So the literary framework view says this, basically, that on day one, God creates light and darkness. On day two, he creates sky and waters. And day three, there's dry land and seas. So there's this period of God creating and separating him. And then on days four through six, he fills in those gaps. So the sun, moon, and the stars are put on the heavens in day four. That fits with God creating the light and the darkness. On day five, there's fish and birds. That works with God creating the sky and the waters. And then on day six, there's animals and mankind, which works because God created the land and the sea. Is everybody with me so far? So on day one, God creates the heavens or the the light and the darkness and these kind of things. And then on day four, he fills them in. On day two, God creates water and sky. And on day five, he fills them in with birds and fish. And then on day three, God creates the land, separates it from the waters. And then on day six, he ends up filling it up. So what this view says is all these questions to try to figure out the age that's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 are misguided. This is a literary form that God is using to describe how he created different spaces and then how he filled them up with things. Heavens, sky and water, earth and water, and then he fills them in with the heavenly bodies, fish and birds, animals and humans, okay? That's one view. That's called the literary framework view. Uh, It's pretty smart in that it gets away from trying to get an exact uh, age of the earth. Here's where it fails on several points, though. Number one, stars are said to be put in the firmament. They're not put in the, quote, light of Genesis, or of day one. Uh, birds are said to multiply on the earth, whereas in this framework, you have to have them multiplying up in the air. And here's the biggest problem I have with the literary framework view. There seems to be in Genesis 1 and 2 some idea of sequence. It doesn't seem to be that God is just making spaces and then filling them in. There seems to be day one, day two, day three, that he's progressing to something, which is his highest creation, which are humans, okay? So with the literary framework view, they don't care about sequence. They don't care about this idea of things building on one another. They don't care about time. They just care about this idea of creating space and then filling in the space, okay? Everybody with me on this? I know this is super science exciting, all right? Everybody take a big breath. Channel your inner Einstein. Let's keep going. Number five, some people think that Genesis may begin with already created matter, Okay? Genesis may begin with already created matter. Let let me be clear on this view of an evangelical option. This view still believes that God is the one that made that matter. It's not as though God used pre-existing materials. There's nothing. There's just God, and he speaks things into being. But what some people will say is that Genesis 1 begins with a world that's already war-torn. It looks like the angels have already fallen. It it seems that it's formless and void. There's still stuff there. That's where the story starts but it doesn't tell us where the stuff comes from. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that God still created the stuff. So this view still says God created everything. This view just says that that's not where the Genesis story starts. Let me rephrase that. This view still believes that God created everything out of nothing, but this view basically says when we get into Genesis 1, that's not the story it's telling us. The Genesis 1 story is to tell us about how mankind eventually fell. It's not meaning to tell us how old these things are. God could have created a bunch of stuff, waited a long time, and then started the drama of humanity. God could have done that. So that's one view of how you get an old earth. Two more, and then we'll get into young earth. The next one is called concordism. 
Again, impress your friends. Use these fancy words. They'll know you're either super theological or super pretentious, one of the two, all right? Concordism, it's also called day-age theory. This is the idea, this is pretty popular, that the days in Genesis are not literal 24-hour days, okay? What these people will say is that the idea here is periods of time, okay? There are six periods of time where God is creating and then a period of time where he is resting. So what they'll say is that the days are not literal 24-hour days. How could they be literal 24-hour days? You don't have a sun yet. When, do you, when is the sun setting? The sun doesn't come later. God creates light and darkness, but the sun doesn't seem to be created till later. And so you get into some of these problems. And so what they'll say is the point here of day is not that you have to take it as a literal day. Sometimes the word day is used metaphorically in the Bible, right? Don't you talk about something like, oh, I don't know, the day of the Lord or the day of wrath or the day of judgment or these kind of things. And so they'll say it doesn't have to be a literal day. The point is that God took these different periods of creating different things, and then the last one he rested. That's the idea, okay? So, so this view basically says that the days are not literal 24-hour days. It's called concordism or day-age theory, again, if you just really want to impress your friends. So that's what's going on there. There was actually a joke. Do you guys know what the Babylon Bee is? There is a hilarious satirical website called the Babylon Bee, and what it does is it puts out these fake stories of what's going on in Christianity, and they had one this last week, which I thought was funny as I was preparing for this lesson, because it said, old earth creationist puts bag of popcorn in the microwave for 3,000 years, or something like that, right? Because it said to put it in the, in the thing for three minutes. And that was the idea that they were, they were poking fun at, is that the days don't have to be a literal day, they can just be a long period of time. And then lastly, the last view for an old earth that people will hold that hold to old earth creationism is they will hold that Genesis 1 and 2 refer only to a localized creation in the garden. That the point of what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is creating a garden, which in the ancient Near East is what kings would do to glorify themselves. And, uh, and so that God is, the story of, that's going on is just talking about Eden, just talking about from Adam and Eve's perspective. Now, obvious problems with that is, oh, I don't know, God's creating things like light and the sun and all these other bigger things. But anyway, that is one view. What they'll say again is, you, you have to remember, Genesis 1 and 2 does have poetic elements, okay? Let me say this, because this is true. Whether you hold the old earth view or not, here's something we all need to agree with. Genesis 1 and 2 definitely has a lot of poetic imagery that's going on there. It has a lot of literal imagery, but it also has poetic imagery. Why does it not say that the sun and moon are created? Why does it say the greater and lesser lights? Well, because the cultures around uh, Israel worshiped the sun and the moon, and so it doesn't want to call them by name. It's saying Yahweh is the one that controls things and creates things. And so there are some elements to where they are opposing, you know, ancient Near Eastern mythologies and creation narratives by trying to say, no, the one being that created everything is God, Yahweh, not these other pagan uh, ancient Near Eastern deities. Okay. Everybody with me? So, so here, let me just summarize so far. I know this is so exciting. We're going to stretch out. We're going to do some squats, get the blood flowing here in a second. For you guys, my blood's always flowing all the time. So the old earth view is simply trying to do this. It's trying to find a way to maintain the findings of modern science and try to figure out how that fits in the Bible without denying the Bible. Okay? So don't think that an old earth creationist is some sort of person that's out to try to destroy the Bible. They're trying to hold in tension the findings of modern science and the findings of the Bible. And so there are a lot of good godly people that hold the old earth view, and that's what they're trying to do. They're not trying to twist the scriptures in their heart. They're trying to say, I don't know how both of these can be true. I don't want to reject science. I don't want to reject the Bible. This is the best I can do. Okay? This is the best I can do. So that is the old earth, some old earth theories. Now let's talk about some young earth theories. So if you say, I don't hold that, I think the earth's a lot younger. 
here, seem, here are some cases that can be made for a young earth. The first one is pretty straightforward. It seems to be the most natural reading of the text. It does seem to be the most natural reading of the text, that God creates things and it happens pretty quickly. It doesn't seem to happen over billions and billions and billions of years of evolution and mice failing and having a thousand mismatched mice and then all of a sudden you get a mouse that works. That doesn't seem to be, when you read the text, the normal way that it's read. Okay? So keep that in mind. I think that's really important. Additionally, I think it's important to keep this in mind. Uh, what, what view would have made the most sense to its original Jewish audience thousands of years ago? Probably a younger view. They don't have the scientific conceptions to say, well, yes, by, by day here, it probably means periods of billions of years because Darwin's going to come later. That's not what they do. So it is the most natural reading of the text to say, by day, it probably means day. Okay, we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, the days seem to be literal 24-hour days. I'm going to skip over that because I've got a whole section on are the days literal. C or three or I-I-I or three small L's or however you do it. It's hard to reconcile a world that is billions of years old with the short storyline of the Bible. Some Old Testament characters live to be hundreds of years old, but not millions or billions or something like this. So though you can't trace back the genealogy like James Usher tried to do and come to 404 B.C., no matter how you trace back a genealogy, it's really tough to say that they just forgot millions of people, right? They just forgot millions of people, which is something you might have to say if you hold that view. Another view is that flood geology may have changed the data of the Earth's age. Let me say it this way. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Noah, right? We all know this story. We put up this uh, picture in our children's rooms despite the fact that it's a story of when God killed everyone, right? That's what we do. We see it as a story about animals for kids. God sees it as a story where his wrath is poured out on debaucherous humanity. So uh, when you tell your kids that bedtime story, it should give them nightmares if you're telling it correctly. That's what I'm trying to say. So anyway, with the Noah story, the idea is that the world is flooded, and what some people would say is that would affect the dating of the age of the earth, right? That's going to compact things differently. That's going to shift things around. And so what some people say is you can't get an accurate reading of the age of the earth if there was a worldwide flood. So that's what some young earthers will say. And then there's this last view of young earth creationism, and I think this one is really smart, okay? I'm not saying that I think this one is right or not right, but I think this one is really, really smart. I think it's a way to hold to a younger earth as presented in the Bible, but also account for the findings of modern science. And here's the view. It's called mature creationism. Mature creationism. Let me explain what that is. When God creates Adam... How many days has Adam been alive on that first day? Like one, right? But is he a one-day-old baby? No, he's at least old enough to have reached sexual maturity, to have a wife and these kind of things. So he's some sort of an adult or teenager or something. And so how old, if you were to ask a scientist, would they say Adam is? 21 years old, right? But in reality, how old is he? One day. One day. Okay? It takes millions of years for a mountain to form. But if God creates the world with mountains already there, those mountains will be one day old. But if you were to put them under the study of modern science, they would appear to be millions of years old because you would still have rocks stacked up on each other and these kind of things. And so what this view says, and this is why I think it's smart, is this view says if God created a world that's already mature, it already has mountains, it already has full-grown trees, it already has humans that are adults, it already has these things, then that will forever forward throw off the readings of modern science because modern science assumes that you just don't have an instantaneous world. It assumes that you have to have billions and billions or trillions of years of things changing before you get the world the way that it is. 
So the reason this view is smart is because it says, okay, I think that uh, we can read Genesis in a fairly literal way. How do we account for the fact that uh, science says the earth is 4.5 billion years old? Well, if God created the world already mature, that would throw off the readings from the very beginning. And so the findings of modern science, we're not rejecting science, but we are saying it's, they're basing it on a method that isn't the way the Bible says that God created the world. Does that make sense? So this is a smart view, because again, we don't want to be the Christians that reject science, but we also don't want to be the Christians that uh, reject our Bible so that we can be cool and fit with science. We want to be people that pursue truth at all costs. You will never find a truth in your life that you should not hold. You should always hold truth, okay? So that is a view. Now, everybody good on one of the two? Who, who wants to summarize what the two views are for me? Ooh, put you on the spot. Don't say something crazy. Your rebuke will be forever recorded on our website from this if you do. I'm kidding. Who wants to summarize the two views? Carl, go ahead. He was, he was looking away like the student that doesn't want to get called on, and so that's why I called on you. Okay. Just old earth and young earth. Great. So good. So just to summarize, old earth people think the earth is old, and young earth people think the earth is young. That's pretty much it, okay? If you take nothing else, those will be easy to remember. Now, let me give you my view, uh, which is, I think, correct. It is, what is he going to say? Drum roll. That's right. I don't know. That's the correct view. Here's my view, okay? My view is that the Bible doesn't tell us the age of the earth, okay? That's super not exciting, You know, for the drum roll, that's like ending on a whimper. It's called indefinite creationism. It's the idea that the Bible is not written trying to tell you the age of the earth. In fact, the Bible's not written trying to tell you how God did it scientifically. Everything the Bible says about science and history is true, but it's not primarily about science and history. It's primarily about God. So I think that that is huge. The reason I think that that's a safe position is just to say the Bible doesn't tell us is it doesn't put us as Christians into a corner when we're pressed to start having to defend something that later on we're going to find is wrong. That's not the point of what's going on. God is not trying to tell you how old the earth is, or else he would say, know that the earth is this old. He's just trying to tell you something else. Here's what I think Genesis 1 and 2 and stuff is about. God's not trying to tell you how he did it scientifically. He's trying to tell you who he is and that he did it. What you're supposed to get from Genesis 1 and 2 is you're not supposed to break out your graphing calculator and start doing a bunch of weird calculations. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, you're supposed to say this. There's one God who created the world, and it's the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, not the God of some other religion. God created the world good, not bad. He's not an evil creator. Evil comes later because we rebel. And it talks about the value of humanity and how mankind has rebelled against God and why the world is broken. That's the point of Genesis 1 and 2. When we start trying to ask how old is the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, we're pressing it to do something that it was never meant to do. So if my wife wrote me a love letter, Right? She says, Zach, let me tell you the nicest thing Katie's ever said to me. She said that my beard made me look like a man from Sparta. That was the best compliment she's ever given me. So she writes me a love letter, and she says, I love you so much, Zach. Your beard makes you look like a man from Sparta. If I started then taking that letter, and I tried to figure out how her heart was doing in a medical, scientific sense, like what her blood pressure was, I would be using that letter to do something that it's not made to do. And I think that most of us end up doing that with Genesis 1 and 2. The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to answer all your 21st century questions. 
It is to instead talk about that God is the one that created everything and how we fell and how God's going to put it right through Christ. That's the point. Okay? That's the point. I think that is super important to keep in mind. Um, Additionally, I think this is really smart. Sometimes we wish that God would have included more scientific details, but here's the problem with that. It just means that as science progresses, then all of a sudden we'd be found to be wrong. A scientific worldview that would have explained Genesis 1 and 2 in the 1400s is different than a scientific worldview that would have explained Genesis 1 and 2 in the 1000s, which is different than the 21st century. So any period that the Bible picked to try to talk about it in scientific language would eventually become irrelevant. God's too smart for that, so he just talks about the fact that he's creator, and he doesn't give us just one scientific paradigm to fit into. Okay? Okay, another thing to keep in mind with my view that we don't know the age of the earth, Genesis 1-1 does seem to be a title. Okay? Genesis 1-1 does seem to be a title in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the story just begins. We know God's the one that created it, right? He created everything, both visible and invisible, right? Christ creates everything. Nothing came into the being apart from Christ, according to John 1, okay? But Genesis 1-1 does seem to be a title. What is the point of Genesis 1? It's not that God is telling us how he created. It's telling everything's function. It's telling everything's job, so it's called functional ontology. There's a guy named John Walton who's an Old Testament scholar that wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1, which is really, really good. Everything John Walton writes is really good. And basically what he's saying is this. Genesis 1 and 2 is not telling you how God did it scientifically. It's written to tell you everything's job. That's how the text is written. God creates the greater light and the lesser lights. And guess what their jobs are? To rule the day, to rule the night. God creates humanity. Guess what humanity's job is? To be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth for God's glory. God creates the birds. What is their job? To fly in the sky. God creates the stars. It tells you in Genesis. Why did God create the stars? To mark off seasons and these kind of things. And so what Genesis is doing is it's telling you everything's function more than it's trying to tell you how long it took to get there and its origin and all these kind of things. It's just trying to tell you when God created everything, here is the job, the function that he has assigned to everything. Okay. Everybody good so far? Wow, that's going to be in the recording, sorry. Uh, Okay, so now let's talk about whether or not the days in Genesis are literal 24-hour days or not. So let me put my cards on the table. I don't know how old the earth is. I don't think the Bible tells us. When it comes to whether or not we should understand the days in Genesis as literal or not, I take the view that we should understand them as literal 24-hour days. Let me explain why. Let's go over the view that says that they're not literal days, and then I'll explain why I think that they are literal days. First of all, those that say that the Hebrew word for day doesn't have to be a literal day, they'll say several things. One, they'll point out the fact that sometimes the word for day, all right, it's the word yom in Hebrew, yom, is used sometimes to mark out periods that are more than 24 hours. It doesn't always mean literal day. Sometimes it means period of time. So we have in the Bible things like the day of wrath or the day of battle or the day of harvest. It's not just one time that you go harvest. There's a whole season of harvest, yet the Bible will use the phrase the day of harvest, okay? Another thing, the reason they'll say that these aren't literal days is they'll say that the seventh day, when God rested, doesn't mention evening and morning. So in the other days, when it mentions, you know, it'll say God created this, there was evening and there was morning, day three, or whatever. When it gets to the seventh day, it won't say that there was evening and morning. And so they'll point out the fact that there's a sense in which we're still under God's rest and that the day shouldn't be taken literally. Number three, the biggest reason that they take that it's not a literal day is so that it fits with the old earth view. You need this to fit within an old earth view. Days have to seem longer if you hold that the earth is billions of years old. And then lastly, they'll point out this. Second Peter 3.8 says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So they'll say even the way that God conceives of days is not always the same way that we conceive of days. 
okay? That sometimes for him it's like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so they'll say there's a, there's a sense in which you can take these days as not being literal. Now, again, the problem with that is, should we then think that Jesus was in the grave for 3,000 years? Because a day with, uh, no, I mean, the the text, the context is going to let you know whether or not it's a more metaphorical meaning of day or it's a more literal meaning of day, okay? And even if this view is right, then it should, if if we want to take that second Peter passage that a a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, then you would just say that God, it took him like maybe 6,000 years to create, but not 4.5 billion, okay? So you run into some more problems. So I don't know how old the earth is. I don't think the Bible tells us. I do think that when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we are supposed to take those days as literal 24-hour days. And let me give you some reasons why. Number one, that is by far the most common meaning of the word day. You have to be careful uh, linguistically, lest you commit an exegetical fallacy that we talked about, that you don't say, well, there's a few occurrences in the Bible where this word's metaphorically, so let's take that as the primary meaning. No, you take the most common meaning first, and then you have to see whether or not the metaphorical meaning is meant. Number two, the phrase, there was evening and there was morning the first day or whatever is used over and over and over again. If you're trying to just say it's a long period of time, it's very strange to say, and there was evening and there was morning the first billion years, right? That's very, very strange. So the fact that there's evening and there's morning mentioned probably means that it's a day. Additionally, if a number is attached to the day in the Bible, you're supposed to take it as a literal day. Right, So the fact that there's the second day, the third day, the fourth day, elsewhere in the Bible, it'll mention this many days, and it'll give it a number, and it means literal day. You don't have like the second day of wrath, the second day, you know, something like that. So the idea is when it's attached to a number, it typically also means a literal day. The idea of resting on the Sabbath assumes that the days were literal. Exodus 28 through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, Yahweh, the Lord, made uh, heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Israel's whole work week was based on the fact that they interpreted it to be literal days. Yes, you can say there were six periods of work followed by a period of rest, but that's not the way they're taking it in this passage. In this passage, they're saying, in the same way that God did this, in six literal days and rested on a seventh, so you should do it in six literal days and rest on a seventh. That's what they're saying here, okay? And then lastly, and this is a big one for me, this would have been the most common Jewish understanding of this text, Okay? There were some Jewish commentators that said the days could be longer, but like 99.9999% of them all took these days as literal because there was no reason for them to not take it that way. You have to be careful when you read something that seems to be the plain meaning of the text and the only reason you want to change the meaning of the word day is because the findings of modern science, you might be reading your presuppositions back onto the text, back onto the text, okay? So how old is the earth? Here's the answer. I'm going to write it up here. This old. Are the days in Genesis most likely literal days? I think so. I think that's the the only way that Jews originally reading this thousands of years ago, pre-Darwin and all these kind of things would have understood it. So that's my view. You don't have to hold that. You can hold that the days are super long and still be a Christian. You can hold that the earth is old or young and still be a Christian. This is an open-handed issue in theology. It's not like the Trinity. It's not like some of these more important things. Uh, And so I do encourage you, though, that uh, you always want to be as close to the Bible as possible. So it's not just because something's an open-handed issue, you can believe whatever. But this is a place where evangelicals are free to agree and not ostracize each other. Okay, let's talk about evolution. And then Jeff's gonna go talk about slavery. What a fun Sunday. 
man, everybody needs to go get like a Slurpee or something after church just to relax, just to cool down. Let's talk about evolution and how we should think of it and some problems with evolutionary theory. First of all, just by the very fact that you as a Christian, if you hold that God created mankind unique and you don't hold this big theory of macroevolution, society will see you as absolutely crazy. They will see you as anti-science. Despite the fact that they say that a fetus isn't a baby and a boy can be a girl, they'll see you as anti-science, okay? That's how the world will see you. Let me give you some quotes. Today, the theory of evolution is an accepted fact for everyone but a fundamental minority whose whose objections are based not on reasoning but on doctrinaire adherence to religious principles. That's from James Watson. Richard Dawkins says, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that, okay? So we are seen as crazy if we hold that God created things. So just know that. Lean into it. Welcome. Welcome to, uh, welcome to what it means to be a Christian. It means people will hate you. They will persecute you. They will think things are strange. Let's talk a little bit about evolution. Uh, this view does not come from Charles Darwin, okay? There are several Greek philosophers who talked about an idea of evolution thousands of years before Darwin. Darwin's nothing special. Darwin's is the one that is popular for promoting the idea of macroevolutionary theory and survival of the fittest. In fact, if you go to England today, it's his face that is on the 10-pound note, all right? So they, they don't use uh, dollars. They use pounds. And on the 10-pound note is Charles Darwin. My whole joke is I have one of those, and I leave it on my desk waiting for it to turn into a 20. Okay, anyway, so <laughs> Charles Darwin in 1859 published uh, On the Origin of Species, okay? On the Origin of Species, that's the title. Here's the original title, by the way. This is going to blow your mind. The original title is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. The original title is Racist. Why? Because if you hold to macroevolutionary theory, you might need to be a racist because you would have to hold that some races maybe have evolved faster than other races. So what, what you'll find in society is that people that hold to a macroevolutionary view have a tendency to be very inconsistent with their beliefs. If you hold to evolution and survival of the fittest, why are you helping the poor? Why are you helping the sick? Why are you helping those with cancer? Why would you promote homosexuality, which doesn't seem to further the species, right, through reproduction? And so what you'll find is that people that hold this view are pretty inconsistent. And one of the things they're inconsistent in is the fact that originally to Darwin, there's this idea that certain races would be more evolved than other races. So that was, uh, that was Charles Darwin, but the publishing of that on the origin of species in 1859 was kind of the... Uh, the lighter to the gasoline on this issue. Now, there are two types of evolution, microevolution, micro, and macroevolution. Let's talk about those. Microevolution is the change within a species. It's the change within a species, okay? If you lift weights, your muscles tear, they grow back, you become more muscular, that's a form of microevolution, okay? That's a form of microevolution, Uh, there was this big study that was done in industrial England where you had these white moths. So what color are they? White. White moths are white. And due to all the uh, heavy industrialization, everything started to get soot and stuff covered all over it. And over time, over several years, those moths started to turn to where they were soot color. They're still moths, but there's changes. Microevolution is change within a species, And there's nothing unbiblical about holding that view. In fact, I don't think you can deny that. There are changes that happen to animals and people and stuff over time as we adapt. I think that's actually part of God's creative design to help us adapt to our situation. But microevolution is a change within a species 
Typically, though, when people mean evolution, they mean macroevolution. Macroevolution is the change from one species into another species. So with humans, you have people of different shapes, sizes, heights, colors, etc. There are changes within the species, but they're all equally people. Macroevolution would say that you have changes from one species to another species, that a salamander climbs out of the water and it becomes a little hairy rodent thing that becomes this, that becomes this, whatever, and it keeps changing, all right? That's the idea of macroevolution. So I think microevolution, you can hold that and be a Christian because you're just saying, yeah, God has made us to where we adapt to our surroundings. People that get bit by snakes a bunch build up an immunity to their poison. That's a form of microevolution. Macroevolution, though, I don't think you can hold as a Christian because now you have to start holding that God didn't actually create everything according to its kinds, but rather there's randomness and death and mutation and these kind of things that eventually we're just evolved apes. That's the idea with macroevolution. Let me give you some challenges to evolution. The first one, it's pretty simple. The Bible, Genesis 1, 24 through 25. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kinds, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Okay? So the first problem with macroevolution, that's what I mean when I say evolution. Nobody, nobody has a problem with microevolution. Macroevolution, evolution. The, pro, uh, the first problem with that is that doesn't seem to be the way that the Bible presents creation. It's not as though God just eventually took a monkey and said, that's going to bear my image. Adam's created uniquely. He's created from the dirt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, number two, the chance of life just evolving from nothing is astronomical. It's astronomical. Math is on our side as Christians. Because what a lost person has to do, someone who's not a Christian, someone who believes in this form of evolution, they not only have to explain where everything came from to begin with, because by the way, you can't have an infinite universe. We talked about that when we talked about the existence of God. Why can you not have an infinite universe that's just always existed, like some sort of primordial soup? Yes, if the universe, so if I ask you to walk 10 feet, how long does that take? Yeah, however long it takes you to walk 10 feet. If I ask you to walk an infinite number of feet, how long does that take? Infinite, infinity, right? So if the world was infinite, we would have never gotten to today. We would have had to traverse an infinite number of days to finally get to today. So you can't have an eternal universe. That's a problem that they run into. The other one is that the chances of life just evolving to where chemicals or whatever just create life is astronomically crazy. Let me give you an example. There was a professor at both Yale and then George Mason University. His name is Harold Merowitz. And what he did is he tried to calculate the probability of cells randomly interacting and chemicals randomly interacting to see what the probability of non-life producing life would be. And the number he came up with is 10 with 300 to the 340 millionth power. That's the number 10 with 340 million zeros after it. That's a lot. Who wants to start writing those? By the end of the day, you will not have gotten to a million. I mean, it's, it's a, let's, just the number of zeros. One in 10 to, with 340 million zeros after it would be the chance of random chemicals interacting to create some type of life. So the, uh, the odds are in our favor. Uh, that sounded a little uh, Hunger Games-ish. The odds are in our favor as, uh, as Christians, okay? Uh, number three, we cannot make animals evolve in laboratories. So for years, scientists have been trying to, under the right conditions, make one species turn into an entirely different species, and they've been unable to do it, okay? So that's with the perfect conditions. In fact, I actually think this is interesting. If scientists did somehow find a way to make something evolve in a laboratory, it would actually show that it wasn't due to randomness, 
but rather you had intelligent minds setting up everything perfectly so it would work. But scientists are unable to replicate it in a laboratory. That's a problem. If you're a scientist, you just can't go by theories. You have to be able to demonstrate and prove your theory over and over and over again. Okay? Number four, individual mutations to make a complex mutation could not happen. <laughs> okay, what does that mean? All right. The idea in survival of the fittest and the idea of, of evolution is this, that for me to evolve or for an animal to evolve, there has to be a reason why it evolves, right? So the reason that it grows thumbs or the reason that it grows more tentacles or the reason that it grows an eye or something is because that gives it an advantage of surviving. Everybody with me on that? The problem is, is that everything that evolves, it doesn't actually give you that advantage until after it's already evolved. I'll give you an example. This is the one Grudem uses. I think it's really helpful. Okay. There is a beetle. Let's talk about beetles. Slavery today and evolution and beetles. Let's talk about beetles. There is a beetle called the bombardier beetle. What does that sound like? It bombs, all right? It does something with bombs. Here's what it has. In its jetpack, I don't know what the back part of a thorax, I don't know, whatever it is in a, in a, in a bug, in its, uh, its, its hinter region of the bug, it has these two little compartments, okay? And in this compartment, it has this chemical. Let's just make it like a red chemical. And in this compartment, it has like a blue chemical, okay? And the two are separate. Now, when it gets scared, when it wants to attack something, it shoots out, it, it combines these chemicals in like a little combustion chamber, just do this. What are we doing today? Okay. It combines these chemicals, and then that shoots out this hot flaming, not flaming, this hot liquid. It shoots out this hot liquid that's like 200 and something degrees, and that's how it fights. So it's a beetle, and here comes a scary spider. So it turns around, and it sprays hot lava liquid on the spider, and it leaves it alone. Here's the question. How would any of these parts evolve one at a time? If you just have this chemical, that doesn't do anything. So why would you evolve to just create this chemical that you can't use? How would that happen? If you just have this chemical, it doesn't do anything. How would that happen? What happens if you create both chemicals at the same time and you don't have this little dividing wall? Right? The beetle just explodes. And not only that, but you'd have to have then a way to shoot it out. And so the whole point is to say it's not just that a beetle slowly evolves each of these. It would have to evolve this entire beetle at the same time for it even to be an advantage. And that makes no sense. It's not just that you, if you were a creature that didn't have an eye and you started to grow an eye, an eye's super complex. You'd have to do one of those kind of one at a time, but then there's no benefit of having the eye. So what would even start the process? Okay, this is a scientific problem with evolution. I'm just gonna leave that picture there. Let that be to you what you want it to be. There you go, okay. Another one. <clears throat> this, is a, this was a big one a problem that has been a problem originally with Darwin and since then. There are tremendous gaps in the fossil record. This is a big one. Charles Darwin didn't have a degree in science, by the way. What, did, what was his degree in? It was theology. Charles Darwin had one degree, and it was in theology. And here's something that Darwin recognized, is that there are huge gaps in the fossil record. Okay? If the theory of evolution is true, there should be all these forms in between these different animals. So in between a salamander and a fish, there should be all these half salamander fish, and there shouldn't just be one or two of them, there should be millions. And in between, I don't know what animals turn into what animals, a moth and a giraffe, I don't know, there should be a bunch of moth giraffes or whatever. The point being is that in between these different species, you should have millions, not just one or two, 
millions of fossils of all these failed creatures that ended up dying off because they got killed, and we don't have any of them. Every once in a while, we'll find some bird that kind of looks like a lizard, but typically then science comes back later and says, oh yeah, that was its own species. But you should have millions and millions of fossils filling in all the in-between forms between the different animals. Now, Darwin knew that at his time. He knew this is a huge problem for my theory, but he just figured over time, archaeology and stuff would fill in the gaps, and we don't have those today. We don't have that. The gaps in the fossil records is a big deal for this view, okay? You have the problem of why are we evolving? Why is there something rather than nothing? What are we trying to turn into? You see, there's no goal. There's no end game with evolution. It's you just try to stay alive. Why? So you can have more babies so they can stay alive. Why? What is the point of that whole process? Why do you want to stay alive? Why not just die? It doesn't matter if there's no purpose, if everything's just randomness. And so there's a philosophical problem with evolution there. There's the problem of how everything even began in the first place. So there's quite a few problems with the theory of evolution. You don't hear about these theories in school because they're trying to push more than just a theory. They're trying to push a worldview that's non-theistic, okay? Welcome. Everything is political. Everything has ulterior motives. That's the world we live in. Welcome. So, now, let me ask this question. Let's do a hypothetical. So, how old is the earth? I don't know. Are the days in Genesis literal? I think so. Uh, is microevolution just change within a species? Sure. I mean, you have... You have horses with longer hair and you have shorter horses and these kind of things. There's no problem there. Is macroevolutionary theory true? I don't think so. I don't think that's a Christian view because the biggest problem with evolution is that it has this idea of randomness. God doesn't do randomness. He doesn't have billions of years of trying to make a mouse until it finally works, right? And so that's the biggest problem I have with it biblically. Now, let me ask a hypothetical. Is it true that God could have used evolution to create things the way he wanted to? Sure. I don't think that's biblical. I don't think that's a primary evangelical position. The only reason I say that is evolution is not a defeater for your Christianity, okay? So if someone comes up to you and says, well, I can't be a Christian because I believe in evolution, well, then you can just believe that that's the way God did it, but you can still be a Christian. There are godly men who love Jesus. Alistair McGrath is one of the top theologians in the world, and he's an evangelical. He loves Jesus. He has five degrees from Oxford, including two doctorates, and that's his view, I think he's wrong on that view, but he loves Christ. And so I don't think it's a very legitimate evangelical option. I do think you can hold it and still be saved, but I think it is dangerous because I think you have to start denying certain things that the Bible does clearly say, okay? The only reason I bring that up is just to say, though, it's not a defeater for your Christianity. If somebody comes up to me and I say, you should be a Christian, and they say, well, I believe in evolution. I say, okay, well, then will you be a Christian that just believes that's the way God decided to create the world through evolution? No, okay, I knew that wasn't the problem. I knew there was a deeper problem. I knew there was a deeper sin issue. So I don't think it's true. I would not encourage any of you to hold it, but it is not uh, a heresy in that sense. It's not like denying the deity or the humanity of Christ or something like that. So keep that in mind. Last thing I'm gonna say, and then I'm gonna tell you how we're gonna do Q&A a little different, a little differently than we typically do. There is a philosopher named Karl Popper, and he's a philosopher of science. So he studies methods and stuff in science, uh, or did. And, uh, and here's something he says I think is really important you have to keep in mind. He says for anything to truly be a scientific theory, there has to be a way to falsify it. For anything to be a scientific theory, there has to be a way scientifically where you're able to prove that that's not the case. Anything that doesn't do that is not science. That's one of the other problems that evolution runs into. If you want to hold evolutionary theory and you're someone who's not a Christian, that's fine. What test can I do to demonstrate that you're wrong? There should be some sort of way where I can falsify that, okay? So 
interestingly enough, I think the same thing, just to make a cultural comment, I think it's interesting with Karl Popper's comments when it comes to the idea of transgenderism. If that's a scientific position, there has to be something that I can do to falsify that. Where someone comes to me and I can say, no, definitively, you're not actually transgender because we did the chemicals, we did the science, and here's what it is, something like that. But the idea here is that you have to have a falsifiability criteria for something to be evaluated by science, and you don't have that with evolution. You don't have that with evolution. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Typically, we then have somebody come up and we do Q&A, and some of you have to go, and some of you just really want to go, and sometimes you have questions, and sometimes you don't because we either did a really good or a really bad job. And so you don't have questions. So here's what I think we're, we're going to do, which I think will be great. I'm going to hang out up here if you have any questions, but we'll do that more informally. So if you want to come gather around and we have just a little group that has questions, that's fine. But we, I, I think we were talking about this earlier. There's some value in allowing you to get out a little bit early so you have time to fellowship, you have time to grab coffee, you have time to go get your kids, you have time to go to the bathroom and these kind of things. But if you want questions, we're not getting rid of it. We're just changing the format. Instead of making you sit through 10 to 15 minutes, you can leave, but I'm gonna hang out here and still answer those questions. So if you wanna gather around, listen to other people's questions, you can. We just wanted to free you up a little bit more. We didn't want to make you just have to sit there right before you have to go sit through uh, another lesson or something like that. So I love you. Be blessed. I'm going to hang out. Thanks for coming in for Scary Evolution Sunday. Next week, Jeff will say things that are more encouraging. All right. See you guys.